You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Well, I invite you to return to John's Gospel, chapter 1. And it's our goal to finish the chapter this morning. Begin reading with verse 35 to the completion. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, Where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this great and glorious chapter which we reach the end of this morning. We thank you for this glorious gospel. And we thank you for your word in general. We thank you for it all. And we pray, O oh Father, that you be pleased to open your word this morning to our hearts that you would open our hearts to your word, opening our eyes that we may behold, opening our, our ears that we may hear. Teach us, O Lord. Guide us, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The title of this morning's message is The True Nature of Christianity. The True Nature of Christianity. It's not a title I necessarily would pick all the time because it's kind of, it's so general that I mean, it could be said of so many passages of Scripture. Uh, but nevertheless, I think it serves well. I, I hope that in a few minutes you'll see what I'm talking about. As we look at this idea of the true nature of Christianity, if you will, I want to look at it, and I want to really approach our text this morning by looking at three words, if you will, uh, three pins that you can kind of, or pegs you can maybe put in your mind to hang everything over. And the first would be hearing, the second would be following, and the third would be receiving. 
Now, it sounds simple enough, right? Hearing, following, receiving. I must say at the start, though, that the first two, hearing and following, for this morning's consideration, we're only we're going to mainly, 98%, we're going to be considering what the disciple does, what the follower does. In other words, we're going to be looking at this from the vantage point of the human being, of the human component in this. Because we could say, and we could spend lots of time saying, that of course hearing involves the work of the Holy Spirit, and then we would begin to look at it from the uh, divine vantage point, if you will. And of course, we understand that that is running underneath the hearing, if you will. That is running underneath. But I really want to focus this morning on the human component of hearing, as well as the human component in following. Hearing, following. But then we're going to switch the table for receiving. The receiving that I want to talk about this morning is actually the receiving that Jesus does. His warm reception of those who come to him. So being I'm switching gears like that, I thought by way of introduction, I should give you a heads up. Otherwise, you might be scratching your head or expecting something uh, that doesn't show up. So let's begin. If you look at Our text here, verse 35, it begins with a time frame, which is fascinating. This is absolutely fascinating. Notice it says the next day. And some would say, oh, the next day. That's fascinating. Absolutely, it's fascinating. Why is it fascinating? Well, because if you look back to verse 29, it says the next day. And I'll say, well, I'm glad you're so excited, Rick. Twice in a row, it says the next day. Uh, Well, if you look at verse 43, it says the next day. You see, that's three times. Now, Someone say, I'm not getting it. Well, we have four successive days here. We have verses 19 through 28 is the first day. We have verse 29 is the second day. This morning we come to the third and fourth day. Now, what is so mind-blowing about that is because remember how this chapter began. This chapter began before creation. It began all the way back in eternity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All the way back before anything was made, because we're told that through Him, all things have been made that have been made. There's nothing that's been made uh, that has been made without the Word. And in verse 14, we're told the Word became flesh. We're also told that the Word is the Son of God, uh, Son of the Father, if you will. So John begins this chapter out of eternity, And he ends in four specific consecutive days, all in one chapter. I find that actually fascinating, that he would begin out of eternity, and then he would come to a specific week of the calendar in approximately A.D. 30, I would guess. Um, That's fascinating when you look at the span that's been covered there in one chapter. The word that follows out of the ESV, we have the next day. The word again is easy to gloss over and not even think about, or maybe even miss. You can read and miss words. It's like your eyes just go right across them. You don't notice them. You don't see them. They don't register with the mind. But this word again is actually very important here. Uh, This word again. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And then verse 37, in many ways, verse 37 is our text this morning. Uh, in verse 37, we, we read, the two disciples 
heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. Now, if we might pick up where we left off last time, which is what we should do in a series like this, when we're going verse by verse, last time, you'll remember I made a lot of noise about how we're constantly looking at ourselves, aren't we? I spent a lot of time in last week's message really trying to get us to release that white-knuckle grip we have on ourselves. We're always looking at ourselves. I was pointing at John the Baptist, pointing out the fact that, look at John the Baptist. He's always looking outside of himself. I pointed to all of those passages where we see John looking away from himself. He's looking away from himself. What is he looking at? He's looking at Christ. And whether he says anything or not, a person like that is going to influence us to do what? To do exactly the same. And here we find him doing it again in verse 36 where he says, Behold. In other words, look. And he's pointing away from himself again. And two of his disciples, they hear him and they follow Jesus. Now, if we're going to pick up where we were last time, I think we could pick up this way. We could say this is the proper function of ministry. Is it not? To point people to Christ. The proper function of ministry, whether it be pulpit ministry, whether it be the ministry of Tri-State Community Church at large, or whether it be our personal ministry at work or the gym or wherever, is to inspire people, to influence people, to motivate people to follow Jesus. That's why it's really, it's just really a heartbreaker whenever men in the pulpit become full of themselves. If you ever get the impression that I am becoming full of myself, hit me in the head with something. Not, not to kill, okay, but to wake up. You can evaluate this ministry as well as you evaluate every, every ministry. This, this, is, this is really how you evaluate a ministry. This is the start. It's not the music style. It's not the songs. I mean, the songs are so important. The lyrics are so important. I've said lots about that. But is, is the message about Christ? Is that what this is about? Am I being influenced to look to Christ? Am I constantly being called to look to Christ? Am I constantly being called to, and do I find myself being motivated after I've been here or I've seen something on the internet or, I've, or whatever? Am I, is, is the message always pointing me to Christ? See, that is really, at the end of the day, that's, that's how a ministry should be graded, should it not? Is it's faithfulness? Because that's the assignment, isn't it? Now, if you have a minister that's full of himself, here's what will happen. People will be going on about the minister all the time, and you'll find that. Some of you have probably had that experience, where in that context, people are always talking about the pastor. They're always talking about the minister. They're always talking about the guy in the pulpit. But they're not talking so much about Jesus. Well, that's natural, because what are they always hearing about? The guy in the pulpit. And the same thing could be said of our own personal ministries. See, it just applies the same, doesn't it? Look at John the Baptist here. You know, here, here he is. And we're going to see more of this as we go, especially as we go into chapter 3. He's pointing to Jesus. That's his assignment. He's the voice, the one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. He's looking 
to the Lord. He says, behold the Lamb of God. And then two, what's really fascinating about verse 37 is two disciples heard him say this and they followed him. Now, they've heard him say this before. That's why the word again is so important in verse 35. And if you look up to verse 29, what is, what is John the Baptist doing there? He saw Jesus coming toward him. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, this, this, is what, this is what John's message is about, isn't it? And while we're on that subject, before we talk about the fact that there's hearing going on, let's think for a moment about what's being heard. What is being heard here? Well, the word behold, right? In other words, look, see, observe, behold. Behold what? The lamb. Now, obviously, he's using figurative language, right? Because a lamb isn't coming his way, right? A little fluffy white creature with four legs. Obviously, it's figurative, right? What do you suppose they thought when John said, Behold the lamb? What do you suppose came to their minds? An animal sacrifice, right? A sacrifice. Perhaps the Passover sacrifice. So, in essence, what is John saying? Behold, here comes the sacrifice. The sacrifice. Now, they're conditioned to hear this. Why are they conditioned? For 1,500 years, there's been this sacrificial system that they've, they've just grown up in, that they've walked in, that, the, that the, the Jewish people have observed this whole battery of purification rites and battery of, of animal sacrifices that take place in the temple. That's what's going to be in their minds, isn't it? And furthermore, they're conditioned to realize that the purpose of this sacrifice is to make atonement. See, atonement is further. Atonement is clear to them where an animal takes the place of the sinner for the express purpose of taking away the sins of the sinner. So all of these things are going to instantaneously be in their minds whenever they hear the word lamb. Behold the lamb. But then there's a genitive phrase that follows. Of God. How fantastic. This isn't just a sacrifice. He doesn't say just behold the lamb and point to Jesus. He says, behold the lamb of God. In other words, behold the sacrifice that has been given to us by the Lord. How breathtaking is that? Now, let's stop and make some application right now because if you're like me and you're seeing this, you're thinking this through, you're getting excited, and maybe the second or third thought, the first thought is like, wow, this is really, this is really breathtaking. But maybe the second thought is, how do I explain this to other people? How do I tell other people? How can other people come to know and see the joy and just the, the breathtaking nature of this? How do we communicate this? Well, I've got an idea. Let's try this. Let's see if we can talk one of the storefronts down on Route 2 there, down on Main Street, and see if they'll let us have their parking lot for an afternoon, whereas customers go in the store, we could stop them and say, Behold, the Lamb of God. Do you think that'll work? <laughs> You're shaking your heads no. You're looking at me like I've lost my senses. 
I guarantee they will be looking at me like I've lost my senses if we try such an exercise. They probably go down there and do that. They're going to think we're kooks, aren't they? What in the world? They're probably going to go in and complain to the manager. We're probably going to be there all of about 10 minutes. Then we're going to be asked to leave. Well, first of all, our current culture right now does not have the category to understand that. In fact, there's many people, I wouldn't even start this sermon this way if I was preaching in many churches in our land. Because there's a lot of people in the church that don't, and talking with them, they don't even, they don't have the category to understand this like they should. You know, we really have to go back to creation. You've heard me say that so many times. We have to go back to creation. But the interesting thing about John's gospel is where does he go? He does go back there, doesn't he? He goes back to eternity. Then he starts with creation, which is something unique to the fourth gospel, isn't it? It's something unique to John's gospel, that he starts that way. But we really do have to establish God as creator, because we establish God as creator, life giver. Therefore, I am not my own. I belong to him. This is not my air I'm breathing. This is not my world I'm living in. This is not even my house that I own. Everything is God's. And he has every right to tell me how he would want me to live. And I have every obligation. I have every duty. I have every... What sh- I mean, I should be living to serve Him who has given me everything that I have. And it's only within that context where the law begins to make any kind of sense. I think we really need to start with creation. We can start with the law. There's many people starting with the law. That's, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Start with the law. I think we really need to start with creation, though. I think we need to make that first step in creation because the idea of the world being created by God has been assaulted for so long from so many different areas that we really need to start with creation. But then once we start as a creator who owns us and owns everything, then we can get to the law. He's established these laws. And the laws can be summarized. Jesus summarizes them with us. The first table is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Have you loved the Lord, your God, with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength? If we ask people in our culture that question, as I have, they're going to give you an answer similar to this most of the time. Well, no, but God knows I'm human. Hmm. We're so close to the passage. If you just turn to Luke 17... This is a good passage to have at your, finger, at your fingertips for that moment. Jesus says in verse 10 of that chapter, Luke 17, verse 10, He says, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Is... What what exactly are we doing when we say, well, God knows I'm human? We're saying one of the favorite cop-outs of this hour, one of the favorite cop-outs, one of our most favorite ways of excusing sin of every description is to say, God, you made me this way. You just made me like this. I'm just, this is just the way that I am. You made me this way. You know that I'm human. Listen, the Scriptures don't allow us that cop-out. This is what we have to communicate to people. We are going to be brought in a very short period of time from now. It's going to be like a blink. 
I've been on the deathbed of many folks, and they oftentimes you'll hear something like this. Just, my life has just gone, it's just, it just goes by so fast, especially when I was younger doing this. A lot of the folks would say, boy, you, you, you need to understand something, young man. Life goes by very, very fast. It goes by very, very fast. It just goes by so fast. In a very short period of time, we are going to be brought before the bar of God's justice where there is absolutely no curve. And what are we going to say at that time? Well, God, I'm just human. I'm just human. You see, that's not going to get it. That's the problem. It's not going to get it. And unless we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, which we obtain by putting our faith in Him, then what is going to happen? We're going to be charged as guilty. And then eternity is going to be set for us. You see, this is the message that we have to get through. Without this message... Behold, the Lamb of God makes no sense whatsoever. Not in the biblical sense. You're never going to make sense out of it biblically. But once you begin to understand that, and you see, behold, the sacrifice of God, the sacrifice that's been provided by God, the sacrifice that is sufficient, the sacrifice that is suitable, the sacrifice that is pleasing to God, right there, it means everything, doesn't it? That's what they heard. That's what they heard. And we're told in verse 37, if you turn back to 37 with me, when they heard this, they followed Jesus. Now, let's take a minute. Let me try to run through this quickly, because if I don't, it's going to get really long. But let me try to run through this quickly. Friday morning, I was up looking through this. You know, I'll just give you kind of a, a hint of how I prepare sermons. I pray over these verses and I wait for the Lord to kind of show me or point. Normally, it's like your, your, your heart begins to focus on one particular verse or it begins to focus on one theme. And I was already honing in on verse 37. And this whole idea where they've heard this before, but now they hear it. And I was thinking, well, this is marvelous, this hearing stuff. Hearing. And I started to think about all the times that I've spoken and all of the contexts that I've spoken in over the years. And I was thinking more of those that are outside of the church uh, than inside, like funerals and weddings and, you know, the 9-11 stuff. You know, years ago, you used to get the, you'd get a lot of phone calls around August and people say, hey, would you come and speak? We're having a 9-11 thing. And and I used to, I, I was never, ever asked to go back to speak at one of those. Like they would run, they I've told some of you this story because I'd say, well, we have any kind of theme. Do you have any kind of theme? Oh, you think God and country. I'm thinking God and country. I'm just, all right, I'm preaching the gospel. I never got asked back to any of these things. I've been around a number of them. Nobody called me back, and that's quite all right. Uh, when it's God and anything, the anything always trumps God. That's how it works. If they say God and country, they're mean country with a little God. That's how that works. You go and preach the gospel, and well, I'm getting off subject. But I was thinking about all of the times that I've spoken, and when you're, when you're in those contexts, it's, you, you meet all kinds of different hearers. And I was thinking of all of the different kinds of hearers. And trust me, when you're speaking in one of those contexts, you usually are aware of those who are rejecting the message pretty quickly. It's all over their faces. They, there's there's the, those hearers 
that stop their ears. They're the kind of hearers that, that Stephen is dealing with in Acts chapter 7, you know, where they stop their ears. It's, I've never, I don't know that I've ever had anybody actually hold their ears like this, but I've had some experiences. If we go into this, it's going to take too long, but I've had some experiences. And I'll tell you, it's not for the faint-hearted because you're looking at these people and you can see that they just, it's more than they're just bored. It's they, they want you to shut it off. They want you to shut it up real fast. But don't write any of these people off. Because oftentimes, a person, when they're kicking and screaming the most, in fact, they kick and scream the most just as they're about to come to faith. That happens, actually. They're kicking and screaming the loudest just as they're about to come to faith. Let the Lord worry about that. Preach the gospel. But you'll see some hearers reject it. There are those who reject it. There are others who are indifferent. I would say up until the last few months, that was the majority of people. Typically, when you're in those kind of settings, you could see there were people who were rejecting it. But you could see a lot of people that were just uninterested. They'd look around, they'd look at their watch. You know, they're just, um, you just can't keep them interested. They're just not interested. You know, there's no, no interest. I'm, but fortunately, since March, I've noticed that a lot of folks who I couldn't even get an audience with are, are suddenly open. They'll let you talk. Right now is a time where we need to be really reaching out. And I would even go as far to say is that if we're not reaching out right now, we're actually forsaking our duty because right now is really a time where we, I mean, it's simple as sharing something. You could just share something, you know, share a clip of something or share a sermon or share something that's on our Facebook page, anything. People are actually looking right now. They're looking right now. But as I've thought about all of the different hearers, we've had those who reject. We've had some who are indifferent. And then there's the curious. I started thinking about the curious. And I've never really thought about the curious this way. Alex is always praying for me. He's always praying, uh, Lord, you know, let Rick hear his own message. Let Rick uh, be. In other words, what Alex's burden is, is that these messages minister to my heart as well. And this week's study, actually, I've learned a lot of things a lot of intricacies. I, we don't have time for me to share them all with you, but I want to share a couple of them with you. And one concerns the curious. I've never really thought of the curious this way. And when I say curious, I don't mean curious as Moses, you know, going to the burning bush. You know, we looked at that on Wednesday night. Uh, you know, we studied the, the, the story in Exodus chapter 3 where Moses is tending the sheep of his uh, uh, father-in-law, and he notices this bush, it's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And he's curious about it. And he goes, I'm not talking about that kind of curiosity. I'm talking about the Discovery Channel kind of curious. You know, there's people that will, they'll, they'll let you talk to them if you can show them that you have a little bit of insight. They'll, they, they, the curious love that. And they'll be, oh yeah. And they'll, they'll hit you with questions. You know, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And that's actually a great thing. The questions are a great thing. Don't misunderstand me. The questions are good. But the curious never move on beyond the questions. They keep it at arm's bay. And they comfort themselves by saying, well, what about this? In other words, if you could solve this for me, I could move a little bit closer. But you solve it for them and they don't move. They don't budge. Man, you can spend a lot of time with the curious. Because it is so easy just to say, hey, what about this? Hey, what about this? Hey, what about this? I can remember, like, that's how I learned, how I was forced to learn a lot of stuff at the beginning because I had no clue how to answer. But I was determined to go find out. So the next time I was asked that question, then I discovered these questions, there's usually about 15 or 20 of them that's asked all the time. 
So you, you get a little insight on those and you can answer them. But the problem is they just keep coming. The curious just keeps, an, keeps asking questions, asking questions, asking questions, but never moving. There's the curious hearer. They listen to you, but they don't follow. They don't move forward. But then we have the mental assenter. You've heard me talk a lot about simply mentally assenting. They hear because they've gathered up enough facts. They'll say, oh, yeah, Jesus is the Son of God. He died on the third day. Or, I'm sorry, died on the cross. On the third day, He rose again. He's reigning. And, uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, I believe in Jesus. But yet there's no change in the life. There's no change. There's no following. There's a profession, but it's void of following. And I thought of one yesterday morning when I was going through this. I was like, you know, there's another one. There's another one that has to be mentioned, and that is the hypocrite. I wasn't going to do it, but then yesterday I'm like, it has to be done. Uh, it has to be done. And let me just say this. There isn't a one of us whose life is completely in step with our profession of faith, is there? I mean, for me, I've shared with you many times, it's at night when that really catches up to me, and I think of what I know about the gospel, I think of what is expected of a person who follows Jesus, and then there's my performance that day, and it doesn't line up, and it's not fun, is it? I mean, it's an agonizing time. I think in terms of our walk in, on this earth, that's got to be one of the most agonizing times, isn't it? You look at your sin, your personal sin, and you say, how can, I have, how can I have that kind of hard attitude going on? How can I have all this? And you repent, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the person that's professing faith, who's living a life that maybe even your garden variety unbeliever would blush at. I'm talking about that. And maybe I encounter those more than most. I have... Sometimes when I'm going through the community, certain of these individuals, they see me and then they have to run to me and they have to tell me all, they have to start talking all this religious talk. And it's like, you know, I had one just do this the other day. It starts giving me, I was doing my, I was doing my best try. I'm like, oh, they, I seen them and I'm like, oh, I just want to keep moving. I mean, I could tell you how this person's living, but it, that, that wouldn't help. But then they're, they're talking to me like, oh, you know, we're just growing in our faith. And we're just, oh, my goodness. That's the hypocrite. They do hear because they tell you all this stuff that the stuff is true. But they're not following. And I, I decided to share this with you because, you know, some of the insights I've gleaned, I think, from this is that I think we need to rebuke those folks. It's hard. My personality makes it hard for me to do that. But I think that my failure to do that actually is more a love of myself than it is love for them, especially when we see how Jesus, if we were studying Matthew 23 right now, we would see Jesus sternly rebukes these characters, doesn't he, in Matthew 23. But then we say, well, that's Jesus' prerogative, and Jesus does have a prerogative we don't have, we don't share. But nevertheless, I don't think it's loving to let these people continue to think that, that we're buying their bill of goods. You know, it's an insight that I got yesterday. I, saw, I thought to myself yesterday, I think next time I see that person, I'm not going to avoid them. I'm just going to say, listen, I'm not buying this. I'm just not buying this. 
You either need to align your life with what you're saying or shut up, one or the other. Now, that's going to be hard for my personality to do, and I probably wouldn't do it that way. I don't want to be unkind. But I would submit to you that's probably the most loving thing you can do, is it not? If someone disagrees with me, call me aside after the service and say, you know, maybe there's a better way. But that's where I'm at right now, I think, with those kinds of characters. So we have some who immediately reject, some who are indifferent, some who are curious, some who mentally assent, then the hypocrite. And then there's verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this, and they follow. Now, what's the difference? The difference is they follow. See, this type of hearing is different than all the other types of hearing in regards that it issues following. This type of hearing produces following, doesn't it? They heard him and they followed. That doesn't, all these, see, this is why I think we need to rebuke the hypocrite. They're on a path to destruction. And we're worried about being nice. If they were in a burning building, I was trying to get them out. And they were like, no, no, I don't want to leave. Would we worry about being nice? You would grab them by whatever you could get a hold of, and you'd drag them out, wouldn't you? We can talk about being nice later. But you're on the path of destruction. Maybe that's how we should say it. Listen, I love you. But your life and your talk are absolutely out of step. You're on a path of destruction because you're not following. You're not following. This is the idea here, following. Now, as we move to the second point here, they followed Jesus. I think follow is a great word for belief. In fact, I've been kind of inning at this over the last few months because I've been thinking about it a lot, and I've been thinking about how meaningless of a term belief has become. What does belief mean now? It can mean anything from a little fragment of mental assent to some even minuscule point to truly believing and walking with Jesus. It could be everything upon that spectrum, couldn't it? It's become such a term that it almost doesn't communicate anything. But the word follow, that's a good word. I think that's a useful word. Are you following? Are you following? Are you really following Jesus? Because, you see, in verse 37, they heard and they followed. Something happened this particular... See, we could go into the divine side of this and we could say, oh, well, Jesus turned on the hearing. He turned on their ears. He turned on their eyes. He, he opened their hearts. He opened their minds. But we're focusing on the human side of this right now, which is what we're going to want to do when we're communicating with people that are outside the faith. We're going to want to focus on the human side. And we say, look, in verse 37, they heard and they followed. They heard and they followed. And true following, look what it involves. Here we see the nature of walking with Christ. We see the nature of Christianity. They followed. In verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? They ask him a question. And you don't have to be like particularly observant to get 
the design of the question, do you? What is the design of this question? Where are you staying, Lord? Well, why are they asking him that question? It's because they want to be with him. They want to know where he lives. Where are you staying? In other words, this is, this is designed to get an invitation, is it not? And why are they asking questions that have a design for an invitation? It's because they want to be invited. Why do they want to be invited? Because they long to be with Jesus. So we could say, if we're thinking about following, what does following involve? The first and foremost thing that following involves is a heart pursuit that longs to be with Christ, isn't it? We want to know you. We want to get to know you. We want to find out what you're about. We really like being around you. We don't really want to go home right now. For this reason, I'm convinced that it's 10 in the morning, by the way. For those of you who are curious, there is a time frame here, the, the 10th hour. You see that in verse 39. There's a debate, and I don't know that we can really solve the debate, as to whether they're using a Roman calendar or they're a Roman time frame or they're using a Jewish time frame. I think it's 10 in the morning. I think it's 10 in the morning, but it's a minority view. Many people, in fact, some of you will probably have um, the ESV as a note. It's about 4 p.m., so they take an opposite view. But I take the morning view. I'll tell you why. Because Andrew has time to go and find his brother. I think they want to spend the day with Jesus. I think it's what's going on here. They want to spend this whole day with Jesus. I have no way of proving that. I mean, it's... Uh, but that's what I think from the text. They want to spend the day with Jesus. Where are you staying? Can we be with you? It's this hard pursuit to be with him, to know him, to enjoy him. And we could compare that to a false pursuit before we move on. We can compare a true pursuit with a false pursuit. In fact, we study a false pursuit at least once a year. We, follow, we study a massive false pursuit on the Sunday before Easter every year, don't we? And what we call the triumphal entry. And what do we have happening at the triumphal entry? Jesus is descending down on the Mount of Olives. There's a bunch of people following him. People in Jerusalem hear he's coming, and they come up out of Jerusalem. And you have this big crowd, largely due to the fact that Lazarus has been raised from the dead, right? And there's a national, there's a national um, uh, sentiment that's in the air. Uh, what are they looking for? They're looking for liberation from Rome. You see, they're not pursuing Jesus on that hill, not in the way the disciples are pursuing Jesus. They don't come up on the side of the hill and say, where are you staying, Lord, that we may be with you? They're not pursuing Jesus in his person. They're pursuing a benefit that they think Jesus will provide them. Now, it's, this is not uncommon. You know, I was thinking of an example of this probably 10 years ago. Me and a friend were right across the river in East Liverpool, walking around the streets, just talking to whoever will talk to us, asking them questions about their faith. And I wouldn't have had courage to do this, but this particular friend of mine has no fear, period. He is absolutely fearless. There's a big porch full of people, which I would typically be in kind of introverted, shy away from, but there's a big porch full of people. And he sees those people, and I hear him, hey, you guys keeping those commandments up there on that porch? And I'm like, oh, man, you didn't just do that, did you? 
we're committed now, you know. And what was funny was this porch cleared. I mean, it cleared. I mean, them people ran. It was like a duplex. And they ran inside like everybody got up and cleared, went right inside. And there were two people left on the porch. There was a young man and a young woman. My friend went and talked to the young woman. I talked to the young man. We were on that porch for 45 minutes. I shared the gospel with this young man. He was in trouble, and he had a court hearing coming up in a month or so, maybe six weeks. And I shared the gospel with him, and I said, you know, you can learn more about this by coming to church. Would you like to come to church? He said, yeah. He said, I need a ride. I said, I will come and get you myself. Okay, I'll be ready. Following Sunday, I was there. He was ready. He came and sat in this room for a number of Sundays until that court hearing came. Then I couldn't find him. Like, where is he? I heard that it went well because we went over the house. People said, yeah, he's, he's good. He went well. You know, the hearing went well. That's what we were praying for. But I couldn't even get him on the phone. And then I saw him at 7-Eleven. He was going in and I said, hey, how you doing? I called his name out. He looked at me. When he saw me, he got back in his car. You know, you're like your friends on the porch. You ran in the house now. What happened? He was pursuing a benefit. This poor young man was pursuing a benefit. He was in pursuit, but not of Christ. He was in pursuit of something he thought Christ could give him. And in this case, Christ did. It was a surprise to me that he found leniency. He was in a lot of trouble. I can't help but to think that God didn't intervene there. No, it's not over for that young man. We don't condemn that young man. That's not our job. It's not over. Seeds were planted. But there you see a false pursuit. Now, following not only involves pursuit that longs for Jesus, it involves radical change. Following equals obedience, does it not? Can we be following and disobedient? When we're disobedient, we're not following. Following equals obedience. Any profession of faith that calls... This is where the hypocrite's at. They're professing faith, but they're not obeying anything. They're not obeying anything. They're living any way they want. And they think by saying a few things that sound religious that they're okay. That's, that's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. Following means obedience. Now, it's not going to be... In this life, none of us are going to obey, are going to obey perfectly, right? So that's why repentance is a part of our life. I mean, it's just a part of our life. Repentance is a lifestyle for the Christian. Uh, but following is going to involve a new principle in your life that says, listen, I, I, I am turning, as the catechism says, with a new endeavor. We're an endeavor for new obedience. I'm going to follow Christ, and I am going to be working and laboring to align my life with his will, Right? That's the nature of repentance. That is the nature of a true child of God. Now, following also involves gathering. If you look at verse 41, notice there that Andrew first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. You remember last week when I said there was a lot of messianic ex expectation during this time? There's another place where we see it. I have found the Messiah. Now, his brother doesn't respond. What are you talking about? The brother happens to be Simon Peter. And Andrew brings Simon Peter to Jesus. You see, there's gathering involved in following. Gathering involved in following. There's gathering involved. Philip, same thing. Philip goes in verse 45, looks for Nathaniel. Philip found Nathaniel. Jesus comes to Philip himself personally. 
The next day, verse 43, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip, said to him, follow me. Philip heard and he followed. And then what did he go do? He ran for Nathaniel. It's part of following. You know, it's not meant to be kept in a closet. It's part of following. Part of following. And you, you know what? If we have time, here's, here's, here's something really cool. It's a little bit on the side, but it's one of those things I was just talking about that I've learned by studying this passage about reaching the curious. Do we have a minute? Your mind, are your minds up to it? You'll notice here, Philip goes and finds Nathaniel. Philip says in verse 45, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Notice they're, they know their Bibles, don't they? You see that? That's where we see. We have to bring our, our, our culture up to that. That's why we can't just say, behold, the Lamb of God, because our culture doesn't know the word. We have to give them at least enough of the nuts and bolts of the word to, to bring them up to understand this. But here we see uh, Nathaniel knows it. Philip found Nathaniel. Philip says, Nathaniel, we found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, what does Nathaniel say in response? He doesn't respond like Simon, does he? He responds famously, if I might add, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, this is the place where the pastor usually says something like this. Well, Nazareth was this despised place that nobody believed anything good could come out of. That may be true, but I don't think that's exactly what's going on here. I don't think that's exactly what's going on here. What I think is exact, I think if, I think if Philip would have said, Nathaniel, we found Jesus of Bethlehem, I think Nathaniel would have just went. But Nathaniel knew his Bible. Look at, the way, look at the way Philip talks to him. He talks to him like someone who knows their Bible. And, and Nathaniel would have known, wait a second, the Messiah, Micah 5, verse 2, Messiah comes from Bethlehem. I don't know of any Messiah that comes from Nazareth. Now, here's the insight. Because here... I, I, I would have started, I would have started a theological, at this point in time, I would have started a theological discussion. But what does Philip do? Philip answers simply, come and see. Now, I started thinking on this way. I think it was J.C. Ryle points this out. You know, J.C. Ryle and his comments on these verses point this out. But then I started thinking this and applying this to the curious. And you know what I think I'm going to do next time I'm dealing with the curious? I'm going to go, I'm going to answer their questions for a little while. But then I'm going to say, listen, you need to come and see. You want to, you want, you want, these questions will all be answered as you come and as you see. Which leads us to the final point, and I'll be brief with the final point, and that's receiving. Again, not the kind of receiving that we read about earlier in the chapter, in verse 11. Uh, verse 12, not, not the receiving, not our receiving, of Je- our receiving of Jesus, but Jesus' wonderful reception of these men. Notice back in verse 37, they follow Jesus. And then in verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following. Okay, any effort that we put forth to follow Jesus never goes unnoticed by him. It never goes unnoticed by him. He notices it. And look at how wonderfully and warmly he receives them. He says, what are you seeking? 
Now, this is the one that knows the hearts of men. This is not for Jesus' benefit. What are you seeking? And then they, they were like, ah, oh, where are you staying, Lord? And look how warmly they want an invitation. He knows their hearts. He knows here's a couple of, five, couple of men that want an invitation. Well, this is why he came. And he says in verse 39, come, you will see. How warmly Jesus receives us. It's how warm his arms are open and how warm he, he opens his arms up for us to, to receive this, to receive us. And following leads to seeing. Our curious friends are not going to ever see because they're not willing to follow. And if you want, you can see to a certain point, then you're going to stop. You're going to stop seeing anymore because you're not following. If you want to see more, you're going to have to begin to follow. That's why in the future, I got this one, man. I got it. I got this one. This has been such, this has been so wonderful for me because next time I talk, I got an inventory of curious friends in my mind here. And the next time I talk with, I might even start calling them. Come and you will see. We've talked about all this stuff. Come on, come and you will see. Because that's going to force them to do something. And it's going to force them to, to, to take ownership of the fact that while they're sitting on the fence offering questions, they're rejecting the gospel. They need to understand at some point, you're rejecting this message. And in rejecting this message, and I'm getting ahead, this is chapter 3, in rejecting this message, you're heaping judgment upon yourself. Every time you ask me a question and I answer it, you get more light that you are responsible for answering for. And when you reject that light, your culpability and guilt stacks up higher and higher. You need to come and see. Come and see. This following leads to seeing. We can see that. Notice how Jesus deals with Nathaniel. Philip goes, brings Nathaniel. Um, Jesus saw Nathanael in verse 47 real quickly. Nathanael comes to him, says of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. If Jesus knows him, that would be, well, and Nathanael says, How do you know me, Lord? How do you know me? And then Jesus says, Well, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. <laughs> what? How did you know I was under the fig tree? A lot of commentators he speculated he was praying and seeking the Lord under the fig tree. I don't know. I don't know. It's speculative for sure. And Nathaniel answers, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. See, Nathaniel knows his Bible. This is coming right out of 2 Samuel 7. Right out of 2 Samuel 7, the covenant promises that are made to David. That's a story for another day. But verse 50, Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? Listen to what he says. You will see greater things than this. How can Jesus say that to him? Jesus can say it to him because Jesus knows he's going to follow. And following, in following, he will see. And Jesus says in verse 51, which I thought originally I would spend all our time on this morning, but verse 51, this would be a subject for, for a sermon. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, he's appealing to Genesis 28. And of course, we understand that because we were through Genesis 28. We, we, we studied that way back when. 
And that's the story of Jacob's ladder, right? A ladder, it stretches from the earth up to heaven, and the angels are sending and descending on it. And here Jesus is saying to Nathaniel, I'm the ladder. Now, before we get into all that, because John is going to be spending time opening that up. But let me just close with one question. Does Nathaniel understand the implications of what Jesus is saying in verse 51 at this moment in time? Absolutely not. But he will follow, and so will these others. They will follow, and it will not be until after the resurrection where they will see. And that's the point that I want to make. And Jesus receiving us, he receives us. He receives us so warmly. And as we are received by him and as we follow him, we continue to see more and more, don't we? One quote. See the nature of true Christianity. See the nature of true Christianity. This this is where the title of this message came from, from one of my favorite commentaries. See the nature of true Christianity. It is following Christ, devoting ourselves to his converse and conduct, attending his movements, and treading in his steps. Matthew Henry. He's one of my absolute favorite commentaries. He wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible many years ago. And as you can see, he's still worth consulting to this day, and he's free. You can re-access him online, or you can buy his whole commentary really cheap. See the true nature, or see the nature of true Christianity. It is following Christ, devoting ourselves to his converse and conduct, attending his movements, treading in his steps. Hearing, following, maybe we should say, and being received. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for what we see here of true Christianity in this text, of the calling of your first disciples. However we want to put it, we see that hearing is following, true hearing, gospel hearing. If we have not followed you, if we're not following you in a pursuit that longs for you, we haven't quite heard yet. But upon hearing, truly hearing, It issues forth in a following that longs and throbs for you, that follows you and aligns our lives with your teaching and your will and enjoys your wonderful reception. Oh, Lord, we thank you and we praise you because as we we enjoy your reception and we follow you, then we in turn continue to see more and more and we continue to hear more and more and we follow with um, with more vigor and more intensity, if you will. We thank you, O Father, for these these great truths that we find in this great chapter of this great gospel. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.